two weeks ago, three weeks ago today. The first of which was seven signs that Jesus did that was recorded by John. And the, the scripture says that those signs were recorded, John did, kind of cumulative, if you will, that by reading them, you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And we do believe that God is still in the healing business. Amen? Right? Because he is Jehovah Rapha. He is the Lord who heals. It's part of who he is. So we're trusting that that word was for someone or multiple people in our church family. And God is faithful. Amen? He is faithful. And I appreciate so much. Um, I, you being here, appreciate those that have yielded themselves to the Lord's Holy Spirit here today, and again, I'm so stirred to share. I've been more stirred in my heart to share today than the previous two, almost combined, if you will. And uh, I really believe God is going to use this message today in a, in a way that will strengthen your faith. I want to um, give you a little bit of a prelude before we pray, just very, very quickly. Now, every pastor or preacher or teacher, male or female, has a, a style of their preaching. And um, a little bit of a format, if you will. There's kind of a their tendencies, some are part of their uh, personality, some of which is things that they've learned in a schooling environment. Others, it's that you, we have extracted from watching others. We absorb, we watch, and we emulate, you know, from there. And so, one of the things that means a lot to me, I'm a, more of an informational preacher, and I know sometimes I put people in information overload. Um, and, and I understand that as well. But, but I just believe the old adage, knowledge is power. And I need to know. And there's a, 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 I just believe in the power of revelation from the Word of God. And, and, I, and so I make it my, I make it my heart uh, desire that I bring something to you. I do believe that when I sit down to study, I believe it's kind of this way. And, and so, again, I'm not trying to reference any other pastor. I have no idea how others gather but but when I go into a particular place my office at home or at the church mostly at my home and and I'm going there for the purpose of what I call sermon preparation I believe that I it's akin to a mine if you will and I'm there to dig out diamonds and rubies to be able to share with you now in doing so those diamonds and rubies the value of which is going to be determined as you exercise, as you live, as they become a part of who you are, as you uh, practice currency, if you will, uh, with them, whatever that is. Or, or if you just sometimes just sit and look at them in admiration or in awe. Uh, so, so I can't necessarily dictate what you do with it, but I can dictate the, the, the intent of my heart to bring it to you. And so I felt like, I know this is Palm Sunday, I'm not preaching about the triumphal entry of Jesus, but I am preaching about Jesus, and I have been preaching about Jesus these last two weeks. I began this series of messages on seven, seven in the Hebrew, or the, the Greek is a, a completion, if you will, it simply means to be complete, and many call it a spiritual completion. So I chose that because John is the one that had given us seven signs. Of the 37 notable miracles in the Word of God, John focuses entirely on seven. He gives us backdrop. He gives us story. He gives us uh, uh, an account that took place between Jesus and the person who was healed. And then he sometimes gives us um, the effects of that miracle, what happened when that miracle took place. So then last week, I shared with you seven sayings. 
And these were seven sayings of I am. And I began that message in John chapter number 8, where Jesus made a very controversial statement uh, on that day when they asked about his age because he had said, I have seen Abraham. And they said, you're not yet even 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, correct? And with that, along the way, the, 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 the people that have studied before I entered into their labors had accumulated that John had, had made seven I am statements. I'm not going to repeat those here today. And, um, and in doing so, I know that it is not the typical pastor, uh, pattern of pastors to preach seven points each week. And because that's, that's difficult to do. And I sometimes, over this last two weeks, I walk away and I feel like, man, I, I just I, I skimmed over the top. I'm not able to bring you in depth. Now today, even though I'm still going to skim over the top, there's one in particular that I'm really going to share with you some things that the Lord's laid in my heart. And so today, I'm not going to speak about seven signs or seven sayings, but I am going to talk about seven statements. That's what I'm going to talk about today for just a moment. So now before we pray, we're going to pray in a few moments. But let me just go ahead and build this, if I can, for just a moment. Seven statements stand out, and, and, and in just a moment, I'll tell you where they're coming from. Because as I thought about that, I, I thought about just that, 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 that term, statement, that we're going to make a statement. Sometimes that's a sports term. You know, a team gets a big victory. It's not at the end of the year. It's not the national championship, but it's along the way. It's like we made a statement that we're for real. Well, I, I began to think about that, and I thought, you know, sometimes statements are made, and it's not only what is said, but it is where it is said. It's a calculated move by an individual. Sometimes it's a political leader. Sometimes it's a religious leader. Sometimes it's a military leader. I'm going to give you a couple of examples if I can. Now, I don't want in any way someone to think that I'm highlighting um, in any positive way Hitler for a moment. But just real quickly, just for, real quickly, in 1940, one of the first military engagements that Germany had made was with France. And Germany secured a swift and quick victory. And in order to, for the, if I may not be able to say it, or may not say it, because armistice, I think it is, that's how it says, to be signed in 1940, Hitler did something. He made a big statement. And if he had ended right there, he would have went down as a great military leader. But we know he was demon-possessed. And he wasn't finished. But in making his statement, in 1918, at the end of World War I, and the armistice that was signed between France and Germany, and Germany was on the losing end that time, a particular railroad carriage had been chosen for that armistice to be signed. And it was signed, and then it was preserved by the French people as a monument. And it had been refurbished, and it had been placed in a museum looking back on the World War. Hitler, once that victory was so sound and secure, had that particular trail cart or carriage, or excuse me, train carriage, removed from the museum. They had to cut a hole in the side of the museum to have it removed and placed in the exact locality where it was when Germany surrendered in 1918. This time, he's on the other side of the table, and he's being surrendered to by the French. He did that to make a statement. Now, go back to World War II. World War II, America is convulsing on the, on, on the backside of, um, of Pearl Harbor. And, and everything is unsettled. And there's a lot of fears that are going on. And, and President Roosevelt 
knows that he needs to make a statement, not his words. We need to do something that said our Pacific fleet was annihilated. Uh, but we need people to know that we may be down, but we're not out. So they, der- they, d- they devised a plan that they would take B-25 bombers. It's called the Doolittle Raid. And Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle was chosen to lead the raid. And, uh, and, and I think there were about 16 aircraft that were outfitted uh, to fly off of a carrier, a naval carrier. And they got as far as they could, and they launched them because the intent was, we're going to go into the heart of Japan, into Tokyo itself. And even though we might not achieve a great military victory on that day, we're going to make a statement. And that's exactly what took place. They got those planes outfitted. Those men left. Many of them died in that, um, in that mission. But a message was sent not only to Japan, to the rest of the world. America may be down, but we're not out. Sometimes not just what you say, but where you say it makes all the difference in the world. So another one comes to mind in the context of political slash military. We can all remember the, 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 the fear and the uncertainty of what was taking place on the backside of 9-11. Just days after the terrorist attack in New York City. And uh, the, the, the trade centers are still smoldering. And people are gathered. And we know that the, the convulsions of that. And we know that the reverberations of that all across the, the, the United States and even around the world. And you may remember President Bush standing there amidst the, in the midst of the ruins, and he's speaking to the people. And he's got a firefighter or uh, one of the workers there that are helping uh, you know, rid, uh, remove the rubbish and search for bodies. Bodies are still being discovered, living and dead. And, 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 he's, and he's speaking, and someone yells from the crowd, I can't, or I can't, we can't hear you. And President Bush reaches over, in the backdrop of that smoldering ashes, takes that bullhorn, and he says, but I can hear you. And he said, and the rest of the world can hear you. And then he said this, and the folks, Texas language, I like that. Come on, somebody. He said, and the folks that knocked these buildings down are about to hear from all of us. He made a statement. America may be down, we may be hurting, but we're going to come back. And we're going to go after the terrorists that have caused this tragedy. So sometimes it's not just what you say, but it's where you say it. Did you know Jesus made some statements? And he often went to great trouble in order to make that statement. Because it wasn't just what he was saying, it was where he was saying it. I told you last week in the seven I am sayings that he went to Jerusalem. He journeyed all the way to Jerusalem on the Feast of the Tabernacles. And he journeyed there, and he waited until the Feast of the Tabernacles, the last day of the feast, had come to a close. I, made that, I mentioned that to you. And I said the reason why is because those seven lampstands, or excuse me, four lampstands that were 70 foot tall that were placed in the court of the women to commemorate the children of Israel coming out of Egypt when God led them by fire by night and a cloud by day, Jesus waited until those lights ceremoniously had been extinguished and so the courtyards of all the Jews in their homes had been lit it was like a nightlight if you will but once they were extinguished it was then that Jesus said it was then and only then that Jesus made that statement I am you thought that's the light of the world I'm the light of the world he that cometh to me shall not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life 
Jesus again another particular time with his disciples. He traveled all the way to Caesarea Philippi, which was about a 25-mile journey by foot that he made. Caesarea Philippi is a particular location there um, where it was a resort area. And we got to visit it there long years ago because the waters of Mount Hermon flow out of the ground. Mount Hermon is a mountain and a mountainous range that's north of Israel that runs along the Lebanon border, and it's snow-capped much of the day or much of the year. And so the waters, as they melt, they, have, they find an outlet in the earth, and they come up right there in that resort area. It became a resort area because in the heat of the Middle Eastern sun, people would begin to gather. By the time that Jesus gets there, it's being taken over by uh, the Hellenist culture of the Romans. And so it has become a Grecian uh, a dedication to a Grecian god of Pan. And, um, and there's a grotto there. There's a large cave that's there. They call it the Gates of Hell. And, and so Jesus traveled there, and he's with his disciples, and he's within eyesight of the grotto of Pan that others call the gates of hell. And he asked his disciples a question. He's traveled all the way there to ask this question right here. Who do men say that I am? Well, they answered randomly. They say, well, some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're Elias. Some say that you're the prophet that is to come. And then he said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter spoke up. And Simon Peter said that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, paraphrasing, he said this. He said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee, but my Father who art in heaven. And he said, I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All the Grecian gods, all the, the mysticism, all the religions, all the political systems that have ever been and shall ever be will not prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's making, how many of you know he made a statement? Jesus made a statement that was much more subtle and softer. He had traveled with his disciples through a disputed territory called Samaria. He traveled there. Because he had an appointment with one woman. She didn't know it, but he did. He had sent his disciples away to buy food. And he goes to a particular place called Jacob's Well. Jacob's Well had been shared by Jews and also by Samaritans. Samaritans are half Jews, if you will. So they're biracial. And they're looked down upon by the Jews that, that, that have uh, really focused on you know, the purity of their, of their lineage. But on that particular day... When Jesus has asked the woman to draw water from him, for him, conversation commences. Maybe you know this. I'll just read it to you. It's a statement that he said, but when you understand where he said it, it gives you the greater understanding. Sitting there beside Jacob's well, Jesus said, Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But the water that I give, the water that I give, if you drink of the water that I give, you shall never thirst. Because the water that I give, there's Jacob's well, but the water, you got to get wa wa Jacob's well and you got to drink it. The water that I give is going to be inside you. And it's going to be a well of water springing up into eternal life. Come on, somebody. Amen. So where Jesus was when he made certain statements can have just as much meaning as what he said. Is it hot in here today? Fair, all right, you never know around here. We have a conflict oftentimes. Would y'all stand up with me today and we're going to pray. Because today, for just a little bit of time, 
I'm going to draw your attention to seven statements from the cross. Seven statements of Jesus from the cross. Because it's not just what he said, but it's where he said it. Come on, somebody. Amen. You feel Jesus here today? We honor him today. Lord God, we love you today. Father, I know that I feel my own heart having been stirred in what I've studied, what I've read, what I've pondered, and what I've already spoken. I believe the heart of the people today is stirred. We could, we could fill it in worship. We could fill it when people exhorted. I can, for lack of better words, Father, I can feel it now. The people are waiting. They're waiting. They know, some of them know they could sit down right now with a pen and they could jot down some of the things that they're familiar with that Jesus said on the cross. But what have you to say about those things today? What's the bigger story? What's the little bit of the backdrop? What can we put, what can we connect to today? Spirit of God, Father, the things that I glean over quickly, forgive me. The things that I dig deep into today, God, I pray, write it on the tablet of our hearts. In Jesus' name and all God's children said, amen and amen. Jesus has been handed over to his religious leaders, betrayed in the garden. His disciples have scattered. He's been falsely accused. He stood before the Sanhedrin. The chief priests have taken him to Pilate, who took him to Herod, who sent him back to Pilate. Ultimately, Pilate has given sentence. Pilate has attempted to wash his own personal responsibility off by symbolically washing his hands in front of the Jews that this is on you, it's not on me. And he has sentenced him to die the death of common criminal. They have taken Jesus, and they have publicly humiliated him. The Roman soldiers have beaten him. He has been spit upon, slapped. They have plucked the hair from his beard. They put a cloak of purple upon him and publicly ridiculed him as the king of the Jews. They placed his own garments upon him, and then they laid at least the the middle beam of what would be called the cross, and he would carry it. They call it the Via Della Rosa. It's the path of suffering. It's a cobblestone path in Jerusalem that would take him from Sanhedrin's, Pilate's court, wherever it was, would take him to Golgotha, a place that they call Calvary. It's a place of the skull. It's a place where the criminals died outside the gates of Jerusalem. And as he did so, and as they did so, he's nailed there. As you and I are familiar with this, obviously. It's the central theme of the gospel is that Christ died on the cross for us. That's what he did, but what did he say? What did he say? I believe, when he's actually having now been nailed between two thieves, I honestly believe that heaven is watching and waiting for the first words that will come from his mouth. And and I believe that because God loved his son, and he's prepared to rescue him. How do we know that? Jesus had told Pontius Pilate, he said, right now, when he stood before the Roman procurator, he said, I could open my mouth right now, and I could pray one word. I could pray, Father, come. Father, sin, and God would send 72,000 angels. 
So it is my belief that though we couldn't see with the natural eye, as Jesus is suspended on the cross, if you could have looked in heaven, those 72,000 angels would have already mounted 72,000 fiery steeds. And they would have had their hand on a fiery sword. And they're ready, they're about ready to penetrate into the natural world. Often they're present, but we don't see them, but they're going to be visible. They're just waiting for that first word to come on his mouth so that they can vindicate him for the suffering that he's endured on their behalf. I can just hear the sound, if you will, of the steel as it rakes across the scabbard as they're getting ready to pull it out when Jesus, they tell us most likely in order to speak it all, he would have to raise up slightly because of the, the pressure that was on his lungs in order to speak it all, even though he has his ankle bones pierced by a nail, by a spike, he raises up, and can you, the angels, bated breath, waiting for that word, when here's what, the first statement from the cross, Luke 23 and 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't know about you today. No sweeter words. No more merciful words have ever been uttered than those words. Because let me tell you today, it wasn't just the Roman soldiers that put him on that tree. It was my sin and your sin that put him there. I am so thankful today. Remember what Jesus had said about his father he had prayed outside of Bethany's burial chambers, and he said this. He said, Father, I thank you that you hear me and that you hear me always. I'm so grateful that God heard that prayer today. I'm so grateful that today he has forgiven us through Christ. Thank God for that first statement. Secondly, from the cross, the mocking continued. They mock him continually with words like this he saved others let him save himself not from a distance in the presence of the man as he's dying the religious leaders are accusing him and ridiculing him and mocking him and did you know that even one of the malefactors or the thieves that had been condemned to die justly for his crimes he too begins to rail on Jesus. So not only his enemies, but one that he had never met previously on one side of the cross begins to rail on him, mocking him, saying, if you're really the Christ, save yourself and save us. But the other brother, on the other side, rebuked the one across on the other side of Jesus. And here's what he said. He said, does thou not fear God? I don't know if we understand the agony of this moment, dying men. Dying men ridiculing and accusing one another. He says, do you not fear God, seeing you are in the same condemnation? And we justly, these are his words. These are other words that were spoken from a cross. We receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man in the middle, he's done nothing amiss. And he said these words to Jesus. Here's what he said. Here's his petition. 
He said, Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into thy kingdom. I want you to hear this today because I tell you what, I I thank God for, for learned men and I thank God for theology, but what Jesus would say next would go against most of the Jewish theology of his day related to keeping Torah for salvation. But it would even go against many of the Christian theology that people have in their own heart today with a works-based theology. Jesus' next statement, statement number two, if you will, will give birth to the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. Maybe when Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 and 8, for you are saved not by works, you are saved by grace through faith, he remembered statement number two made from the cross when Jesus turned to a dying man condemned justly for a sin whose last breath he asked, if Jesus would remember him when he came into his kingdom. And he said, number two, statement number two, Verily I say unto you, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Now I'm telling you, I could preach in depth on this one today. And I'm not going to because I'm going to hasten you somewhere very quickly. But I want you to know today that that criminal had been judged rightly by unrighteous men, but with his last words, he asked the Lord to welcome him in his kingdom without merit for salvation, without opportunity to serve or work or do anything whatsoever. He simply based it entirely upon the mercy of God revealed in the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus said, today, when you give up the ghost, when you die, when you expire, when they have folded your body up and put it in a grave, you're going to be with me in paradise, glory to God. I am thankful today to having been saved not by any works of my own righteousness. There's not anything good that you and I could do that would be good enough to satisfy the just demands of a holy God. But God in Christ, glory to God. Oh, that's going to awaken the preacher in me today. Number three, I told you I have to skim across these. This is up to you to dig it out the rest on your own, correct? One of the most precious and personal, even from the cross. Precious and personal, one of the most precious and personal sides, the humanity. Sometimes we get focused on one or the other, the divinity and the humanity. And and how many know he was the son of God, but he was also the son of man. But he was also the son of Mary. Did y'all hear that today? One of the most precious and personal sides of Jesus is his genuine love for his mother. It stirs your heart. Most likely, Joseph is now deceased. He's passed. Only Mary survives. She has followed Jesus and his controversial ministry from afar. Sometimes she tried to get close, and sometimes she had to back away because it just got contentious. And many of Jesus' followers at this time have scattered. Judas has cast his coins at the feet of the Sanhedrin. Perhaps even at this time, he's already hung outside the city gates. Peter is weeping somewhere over his denial of Christ. But John, John follows closely. John follows all the way past the accusers and those who mocked Christ. And he stands amidst the women. Mary. Mary. And another Mary. And he's standing there, 
And I wonder, I want you to hear this really quickly about Mary, his mother. Do you remember a statement that had been made to her by Simeon the prophet at the dedication of Jesus? He said, to, he had prophesied about Jesus, but then he prophesied to Mary. He said, this child is set for the rising and falling of many in Israel. But he said, Mary, a sword's going to pierce through your own heart as well. You know when it was? It was on that day when she looks up. And there between heaven and earth is her son. Beaten, broken, stripped naked, falsely accused, seven fountains of blood pouring out. Only a mother could understand the trauma of that moment. But on that day, John records, John records the third statement that Jesus makes. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Turning her attention from him, he's the eldest son, his responsibility to take care of his mother. He cared for enough that even in death, he then turns and he completes this transaction. Woman, behold thy son, not the son on the tree, but the son, the young man that's standing beside you, the one whom Jesus loves. And then he says, he completes the transaction. Then he said to the disciple, behold thy mother. What a beautiful image of the compassion of Christ. Are y'all here today? Jesus loved her to the very end, making certain that she would be taken care of. Here's what I want to drop in your heart today. Jesus cares. Don't think for a moment he doesn't care for you. He cares for you. He knows where you're at, and he cares for you. He's moved by the feelings of our infirmities. One of the other things that was most prominent about the life and the ministry and the death of Jesus was that he fulfilled the prophetic scriptures. You remember what David said? David had said this, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, you know I'm on a journey. I've completed three. You've got four. We're at the tipping point here. The last one is very quickly. We'll not go into hardly any depth, neither the fifth. But the sixth one is going to stand out to us today here in just a moment of time. And so, but on this particular one here, just a moment, I want to draw your attention that one of the things about Jesus' life, his ministry, and his death was that he fulfilled the prophetic scriptures. Do you believe that today? I believe that he fulfilled the prophetic scriptures. Remember what David had said about the Lord? He said, the Lord had said to my Lord, revealing that the son of David was actually the Lord of David. Are you out there today? And so there are other times it was said that the scriptures might be fulfilled. We even see that in the context of some of the gospel writers. But there were those that had mocked Jesus uh, had, when they did so, when they were mocking him, they were actually taking, how many of you know the devil can even take, the enemy can even take through other people the scriptures to ridicule you? I'm going to show you that here today. I don't know if you're aware of what took place by the mocking of Jesus on the cross. It's in Matthew chapter 27. They're going to put it on the screen. I'm going to turn to it just really quickly in my Bible. Chapter number 27, verses 41 through 43. And I'll show you how that the, even in that moment of time that they are taking the scriptures themselves and they're mocking him as he is expiring on the cross. Likewise, the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and the elders said, He saved others himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Verse 43 stands out. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will save him, for he said, I am the son of God. What they were actually doing 
in that particular moment, they were taking Psalm 22, verse number 8. Almost like when Satan used the scriptures to tempt Jesus on the mountain. Do y'all remember that? But Jesus then took the scriptures and turned them on the enemy. In that moment of time, they are actually, what they're saying is, they're quoting from a messianic psalm, Psalm 22 and 8. I think they're going to put it on the screen for you. And it says here, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. And so very quickly, even from the tree, Jesus turns the scriptures on his enemy and he quotes from the same psalm that the people were mocking him with in unbelief. But let me tell you, the statement that Jesus made, statement number four, we have often read this and we've wondered about it and we've thought to ourselves that Jesus is wavering and he's to the degree that the suffering is so great that he could almost slip into unbelief because of what he said. Matthew 27 and 46 completes this narrative here. About the ninth hour, Jesus says with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I've read that until this particular time of my study, and I've always saw that in a moment that Jesus is wavering under the weight of the cross, his brow pierced, his hands and feet pierced, he's wavering. But actually, I learned through this study with my pick in my hand, and I went into the mind that it was a statement of faith. He was declaring to those who were ridiculing him, saying, if you're really the Christ, mocking him, if you believe in God, if you trust as the messianic prophet said long ago then surely you'll come down from the cross but Jesus in firm assurance of faith testifying of who he is said but my God my God why hast thou forsaken me he is aligning himself with the prophetic word and he's speaking the prophetic word knowing that God had spoken that about him Man, that's a good word right there, and you're going to just meditate on that on a later date and time. Jesus did not give place to unbelief, but he took the word of God, and he affirmed that he was the suffering servant that had been spoken by the psalmist David. Church man, let me tell you, all this happens in a short window of time. And in one singular location, remember, it's not just what he said. Are you all out there today? It's where he said it. The fifth, very quickly today. Numerous places, again, it is written that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus often did or said things with a full understanding. This was to fulfill the scripture. As a matter of fact, John 19 28 says, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He says the fifth. Here's the fifth statement made from the cross. I thirst. I thirst. Now, I'm not going to take you into a lot of depth in this particular one. He had turned down some type of medicinal wine or vinegar earlier when they had tried to give it to him because it would have been something that was that that had some type of ingredient that would have deadened his senses to the pain that he was in and jesus was willing to suffer come on almost like the the woman that refuses to take it as it would call it epidural refuses to take it because she wants natural childbirth hello somebody i know she said pastor i know some of the ladies he don't know nothing what he's talking about i was with him until he mentioned that I'm trying to compare you to Jesus for just a minute here, okay? So give me a little bit of a break. In essence, that's in one sense why he rejected the wine that had been previously offered to him because it would have deadened his senses and the pain of the cross would have been lessened and he was willing to absorb it all, alert all of his faculties, 
But as after all things, after he made that previous statement, he said he knew that all things were now fulfilled. He said, I thirst. Why would he say I thirst? Because they brought him something to drink. Because in that moment of time, he was fulfilling the scripture. Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me gall for my meat, and in my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, why would I say all that to you? Because I'm going to hasten off of it quickly. I'm going to drop this down in your heart. This is from me to you. You've got to study this out on your own. If you don't know Jesus according to the scriptures, then you don't know Jesus. Can I say that to you? If you don't know him. See, we live in a culture today. How many know what idolatry is? Idolatry is the figment of someone's imagination. And you can hew it out of a stone or a rock, or you can hew it out of wood, or you can pick it and pour it into some type of uh, whatever, and you can call it, and then you can develop a whole systematic theology around it. That's what the culture is doing today. There's a lot of idolatry in America, right? It just may not be bowing in a shrine somewhere, but it's coming through their, their, their prophets called the media. Are you out there today? And so, but with this, just for a moment of time, so people are doing that about Jesus. But I want to tell you, if you're never going to really know who Jesus is until you know what the scriptures had said about him before he came. So you and I get to look back through the lens and we can understand. I've made it that known to you last week when he said before Abraham was, when he said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he saw it and was glad. And I shared with you when he saw it, when Abraham lifted up his eyes and had a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And on that day, Jesus is hung on a tree with a crown of thorns about his brow. Are you out there today? That was the ram of Abraham. Come on, somebody. And you will never know who Jesus fully is until you see him, not just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but you see him in Genesis and Leviticus and in the Psalms and in the Chronicles. That's when you'll know who Jesus is. When he said, I thirst, I thirst is to fulfill the prophetic word. Lastly, number six, number seven, I'm going to go over very quickly, but this is the one that I'll tell you what, I'm excited to share with you today. I don't know what time. How many of you played? Let's pray real quickly. Father, Help Pastor Brown to not look at the time. Come on, somebody. Amen. John 19 and 30. Perhaps, perhaps, I don't want to say how every word that he spoke is just as important as the previous. Right? The third is important as the fourth. Right? The sixth is important as the second. Not just only what he said, but where he said it. Are you out there today? Read that. The sixth statement from the cross, Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar. It, now see, I'm reading it calm, but you know, Mark said that with a loud voice. So again, think about that for a moment. For all the pain, many hours have passed. It's now passed later in the day. The darkness has passed. It's now light again. There's confusion all around Jerusalem, and Jesus with a, in order with a loud voice, he has to push himself on that spike one more time, gather and muster all the strength that he has. And with a loud voice, he says three words in English, but it's one word in Greek. It is finished. It is finished. And we know what happens in a moment here, but I want to stop and talk to you about it just very, very quickly. In the Greek, it is teleo. It's how it's pronounced. Now, there's another... Uh, uh, derivative of this word that others uh, draw their attention to, but it's easier for me to say teleo. So I'm going to go with it. And it simply means, as it is written there, it is finished. It means to end. It means to be complete or accomplished, to bring something to an end. And some say that that word that Jesus chose, remember, one word in Greek, 
three words in English, it is finished, that that word reflects the culture of the ancient world. How many know Jesus is choosing his words wisely? Even to the very end, because they're going to reverb, those words are going to reverberate in doctrine and teaching throughout the generations. So Jesus opens his mouth with one of the last words that he will ever say before his death, burial, and resurrection. He says, Teleo. And some say that it's reflecting the culture of that ancient world. Some say it was from the servants, just very quickly, that when a servant reported to the master, the master had given an assignment to his servant, I need you to do this. I need you to mow the yard. I need you to go pick up some groceries. I need you to then come back and prepare my dinner. And then when all of that is completed, they, say, they tell us, historians tell us, the servant would come and report to his master and would say, Teleo, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. Others say the word is drawn from from ancient, of that particular time, an artist, after completing a painting or a sculpture, they would literally take one step back and there would be no longer any place anywhere to add. How many remember little Bob, was it Bob Robbins? What was his name? Bob Ross. Bob would say, just a little bit more here or just a little bit more there. And it was almost as if they were saying, God had taken a step back and said, now it's complete. Are y'all out there today? Others tell us, though, that the term teleo, teleo is an accounting term. And it would come from merchants. And it would come that when someone was in debt, and when that creditor held a certificate of debt against the individual, that once that debt had been satisfied, the creditor would then write on it or stamp on it teleo. That, that would simply mean paid in full or it is complete. And it would be written across the promissory note. Others say that it was of imprisonment. That when a prisoner was thrown into prison, typically for a debt that he could not pay, a certificate of debt was issued by the judge. And the man would stay there for months or even years until the sentence had been satisfied or until someone had paid the debt. And once the sentence had been satisfied and the crime had been accounted for, the judge would sign that certificate of debt to Leo, and it would be given back to the prisoner, and it would be, it is finished, or it's paid in full. And the individual would be, it would be of his, uh, uh, of his best place to keep that certificate of debt with him that had been signed, it is finished, to Leo, because if he's walking down the street, and the Roman soldier sees him and says, wait a minute, last week you were in jail. How, do you, how why, did you escape? He would then turn and he would pull and unscroll the certificate of debt. And it would say, Teleo, across his indebtedness, saying it's been satisfied or paid in full. Now, I don't know about you. I'm about to get happy in here for just a moment of time. Now, others believe, now listen, others believe that Teleo spoke of the religious rights of the Jews. When a sacrifice was offered, or especially on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. For they tell us, historians tell us, that when the high priest has gone behind the veil into the holy place with the blood of a bullock and the blood of a goat, and he's made repentance for the sins of the children of Israel, he is now emerged back on the outside of the holy place. And before he confesses the sins of the children of Israel upon the head of the scapegoat, he opens his mouth and he says these words, Teleo. It is finished. I don't know about you, all of those work good for me. Right? And I believe perhaps all or some 
reveal the depth of Jesus' statement. But when I was in my office, which was a minefield for me, or is it mine for me, with a pickaxe in my hand, which was my study and my preparatory work, and saying, God, prepare my mind, prepare my heart, because I want the people to just ponder and receive of something, I believe God dropped something in my spirit that needs to be shared today. Because one of the things that I do with something in the Scriptures, in order to understand the depth of it, and I know I'm going into overtime, but you got to just go with me. If the ball game tomorrow night goes into overtime, everybody's going to be excited. And so I'm going to go into overtime because you got to see this today. Did you know those three words are only used one other time in all the New Testament? John records it in John chapter 19, verse number 30. But let me go a little bit farther. James records first before this verse in verse 14. He says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. How many of you can identify with that? I've been tempted and drawn away of sin that dwelt on the inside of me. And James then said this, describing the effects of sin in the life of an individual. When lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. And on the cross, let me tell you today, he who knew no sin... I know we think, well, he was the sacrifice for sin. He was the sacrifice for sin, yes, but he was made to be sin. He who knew no sin was made to be sin. Sin is separation from God. I know it means transgression. I know it means breaking laws of God, but it also brings death. And I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. If sin had a beginning, sin would have an ending. Oh my gosh, I gotta just, I may have a one-man revival on that right there. I want you to know that if in the garden, by one man, sin entered the world. Sin had a beginning. And if something has a beginning, then it's got to have an ending. Right? And so sin had a beginning in the garden. By one man, sin entered the world. So sin would have an ending on that day. Mankind separated from God by sin. Sin met its fate on the tree, glory to God, when Jesus opened his mouth and said, Taleo, it is finished, glory to God. So that which has bound you, sin, shall no longer have dominion over you because you are no longer under the law. You are under grace. You are not held in bondage any longer. You don't have to be an adulterer. You don't have to be a fornicator. You don't have to hate your brother or your sister. Sin died on the tree that day. Jesus said, it is finished. Glory to God. Hallelujah. My sin, other people's sin. Adam sinned, wretchedness, trespass, breaking of the commandments, the wages of it. How many can identify with me? I was born in it, sold under it, right? And I, I had no power to be free from it. And I was held under the bondage of it because of Jesus on the tree. That which had a beginning had an ending and to Leo, it is finished. Jesus' death has taken the reward of man's transgression. He finished it on the tree. And by doing so, he freed you and I from sin's bondage. Glory to God. Whoa, somebody ought to write that in a commentary. Sell that on eBay. Glory to God. Hallelujah. And lastly, as Daryl joins me, the thing you're looking for. I learned that from Larry Smith. He said, that's the one we've been looking for, the last. The last, the last, the last saying. 
with the same breath when those words, teleo. Did you know after he said teleo, the Bible says that the veil was rent from top to bottom. Sin, that which had a beginning, had an ending. I'm not saying that we can't transgress. Obviously, we can, tra- can transgress. But its effect was broken by the power of Jesus' death on the tree. He was made to be sin. And with, these, with this final dying breath, the seven statements of Jesus come to a close. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. What I did not know until this study, that once again, he's fulfilling the prophetic word. For the psalmist had written these words a thousand years earlier. Into thy hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Church family, no man ever spake like that man. That's King James English. No man ever said things like that man. No man ever said words that would affect so many like that man did. And not only the words that he spoke for three and a half years, I know some of you feel like that's the length of this sermon today. (laughs) But I want you to hear this today. It's not just what he said, but it's where he said it. He could have said almost everything that he'd said on the cross previously, except for the final statement. But he waited. He waited. He waited till his body was broken and pierced, till blood was flowing, to pray, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He waited till he was crucified. In the midst of two malefactors, two criminals, perhaps even of murder, on either side of him, to turn to one and say, Today, you're coming with me and you're going to be in paradise. He waited. <laughs> he waited. He could have made the transaction with John and Mary before that day. He could have. He'd been coming in and out of Bethany and Jerusalem all week. He could have pulled Mary and John aside and sat across the table and said, John, when I'm not here, I want you to take care of my mother. Mom or woman, when I'm gone, he's going to take care of you when you get old. But he waited until it would cost him everything to say it. He could have spoke Psalm 22. He could have asked for something to drink. He could have announced Taleo at any other time. But he waited till he was on the tree. Blood flowed freely that day so that you and I. If seven is the number of completion, if there were seven days to make one week, if there were seven statements to make one statement, what would it be? I don't know. I don't know that I can. I think maybe it would be redemption, but I don't know that. 
I don't know what this sermon has meant to you exactly. I know what it did for me. It put me in awe of the one who bled and died for me. I felt my sin on the tree. I felt my shame, my guilt, my condemnation. But then I knew God had placed it on him. I felt like I could walk free. I tell you what, I wanted to do, I wanted to spin when I saw Taleo. When I said, man, sin is finished. It has, sin cannot have power over me any longer. It's broken off of me by the grace of God. So I don't know what the sermon means for you. I just want you to know that Jesus said things on the cross that can change your life if you'll let him. I'm going to give a simple invitation. I've been preaching for the last three weeks and with the intent of just giving people an opportunity to make a profession of faith in Christ, hoping that this sermon would stir your heart. For the believer that's here among us today and the overwhelming majority of those that are here today, I hope that through some way, through my ramblings, God could, could reveal to you His Word. That in your mind, as you heard the Word, I prayed it this way. I said, Lord, make my tongue the pen of a ready writer. Lord, write these things. Reveal these things to the people. I, I understand the power of imagination. I know we can watch, and we can watch The Chosen, or we can watch my all-time favorite, 1976, Jesus of Nazareth. But I tell you what, to me, both of those still dim in comparison to when a man or a woman of God is anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit to speak the Word of God. And I pray that when I'm speaking the Word and we're reading the Word audibly, publicly, that in the ability God gives us, there's an imagination. We have a lot of negative imaginations in our mind, but how many of you know when His Word is being revealed to you, that's the power of the gift of imagination. I can imagine and ponder. I know what it did for me. So I hope for the believer it has strengthened your faith the way mine's been strengthened. I don't know what I'll do with this diamond. How many of you know that in Murfreesboro they find diamonds on the soil? Uh, And so I I don't know what I'll do with what I found this week. I I don't know. Will I chisel it out a little bit more? Will Will I put it in a ring? Will I use it for merchandise? Or, or will I just sit back and look at it? Will I, like the pearl of great price, will I just sit and look at it because I stand in awe when I look at it of the glimmer, the glint of Jesus' redemptive work? So I don't know what it's going to do for you. I pray that it's not just here and gone. I pray that it's not in one ear and out the other. I pray that it somehow got in your spirit you're going to read Jesus' statements from the cross differently in the future. But for somebody that could be among us who's not professed faith in Christ, let me tell you today, you can be like that dying thief. If you'll ask for his mercy, he'll grant it. That's one thing I can tell you with sure confidence today. If your heart is pure and you ask the Lord for his mercy, he'll give it. So our heads are bowed and our eyes closed. This is my only invitation today for I've preached a long time. If there's somebody under the sound of my voice, young or old,
male or female, visitor for the very first time or somebody that comes sporadically or regularly to our church. You're here today and the Holy Spirit of God is pulling on your heart. Pulling your heart. We've said it before, tugging on your heartstrings. Let me say it another way. Jesus said this. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you will open to me, my Father and I will come in and we will sup with you. That's your invitation today. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I hear him knocking today on my heart. The door of my heart, the Lord is knocking. Today, I want to make a profession of faith in Christ. If you will, akin to the man beside Jesus on the cross. For let me say this to you, sir, and this to you, ma'am. You cannot save yourself. Nothing you could do or say could save you. But if you will trust in Christ, you will be saved today. You will have eternal life inside of you today from this day forward. You'll be his. If you're here today, you have the courage to slip your hand up. I'll pray with you right where you're at today. Is there anyone today? I'm waiting. I'm looking from left to right. Is there anyone west of the sanctuary? Is there anyone? I'm waiting. Teenager? Middle, left, middle, west. Is there anyone? I'm waiting today. Christians, are y'all praying today? Middle east, if you will, right of the pulpit. Is there anyone in that group of people that wants and needs to make a profession of faith? Lastly, all the way east, is there anyone today? I'm waiting. I'm waiting for just a moment. Just a moment. Sir, ma'am, I can't, I cannot guarantee. I don't know the heart of every person. I have to, I have to, I have to treat this moment like there's someone or even someone's who don't know Christ as their Savior. And I have to give you this opportunity. I'm not trying to manipulate the moment. I'm not trying to linger it out until somebody prays some type of cameo prayer to hurry up and get me to, 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 to shut up so we can dismiss the service. That's not what this is about. This is about giving you an opportunity. Our church is willing to pause for just a moment because we remember when we were seated where you're seated at. We remember when our heart was beating deep in our chest and we were realizing we needed Christ as Savior. And I will pray with you. One last one. I'll look across if there's anyone that would raise their hand today. I'm going to ask our church family to, to stand up with me and we're going to close in prayer. Isn't the Lord good today, church family? He is so good and I'm so grateful for his kindness. Are you grateful for his kindness today? Seven signs, seven sayings, and now seven statements. Father, we come to the end of this moment here. I don't know, Father, the people seem to be excited to be in church today. They, they seem to be excited to receive the word. I, I, I could feel it and hear it in their voices in their smile, their handshake, but I don't know if they were as excited as I was to share it. 
God, Father of God, you, you were so gracious to drop these things. I know, Lord, I entered into other people's labors. And the seven statements have been preached by people that are far more prolific in ministry than I am. And I, and I borrowed from their labor. But God, in the privacy of thy office, you were kind enough by the Holy Spirit to drop revelation that caused me to marvel at the redemptive work of Christ and the power of those seven statements. Let the people go out of here today empowered by what they've heard. Let them go out of here today and reflect through the course of this week, Passion Week. God, perhaps revealed a little bit early, Passion Week, God. The final hours, not the final days of his life, the final hours of his life shared on this day. Let it stir us. I remember what John said, but these are written that when you read, you might believe, and in believing you would have eternal life. May the same effect be in us, God. I bless the people. I bless those that have come, that, Father God, visitors among us, I am grateful that they were here. Our church family, God, I'm so thankful. The ones that come every week, and they're so faithful, God. I just bless them all. I pray, Lord, as they leave today, God, their spirit is overflowing in gratitude and in love for their Savior, for his death on the cross. And the words that he said in passing. Lord, we love you today in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Now listen, real quickly.